Well, our Bible reading is taken from the Old Testament book of Numbers, the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. And this is chapter 21, Numbers chapter 21, and beginning to read at the first verse. The book of Numbers deals with the travels of the Israelites after they left Egypt and they're wandering in the desert for 40 years. And we are entering into some of those wilderness wanderings and the events that happened there as we come to Numbers chapter 21 and the first verse. Let's hear the word of God. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord, If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns, so the place was named Hormah. They travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go round Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. We thank God for the reading of his word. On this anniversary Sunday, I am encouraging you to think about what we believe and the heart of what we believe and what we stand for. And I suggested this morning that what we believe is, is summarised wonderfully in something that we know as the Apostles' Creed. And uh, I read it to you this morning, but you'll notice, if you know it, that the, the majority of lines are about the Lord Jesus. And so essentially it, uh, it says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And then there's a little bit about God, the Father Almighty. And then very quickly, it goes on to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. And there's a long section about that. And then, just a very short sentence, I believe in the Holy Spirit. 
And this morning, we were considering what that really means for us to believe in the Holy Spirit, the great encouragement that it is to us to believe in the Holy Spirit. But the vast majority of words in the Apostles' Creed, and indeed in most of the the summaries of Christian belief, is all about Jesus. Listen to what it says about the Lord Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. All that we believe about the Lord Jesus. So what shall I come and preach to you about? Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? Sometimes if you were a little fly on the wall in our house, in the kitchen, when the radio's on, and one of these thought for the days comes, comes up, you will, uh, you will hear me saying the same thing again and again and again. Just tell them about Jesus. Just tell them about Jesus. And you're listening and they're talking about all sorts of things, but not about Jesus. And what we need to hear is Jesus. Because at the heart of what we believe is Jesus. So I'm going to talk to you this evening and bring you a message from John chapter 3 about Jesus. This morning we were looking at some of the earlier verses, particularly the Holy Spirit. You must be born again. The Holy Spirit is like the wind. You, you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. So it is with, the, with everyone born of the Spirit. But... The Lord Jesus goes on speaking to Nicodemus, this, this Pharisee uh, in the night time who's come to Jesus. And he talks about, Jesus talks about himself. And this is what he says. This is John chapter 3 and uh, verse uh, 12. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So reads the word of God, and that's what the Lord Jesus wanted Nicodemus to know about himself. Nothing can be more important to us than God's work in saving us. Nothing is more important than us. Nothing in all of our lives is more important than to know how can I be saved? How can I know God? And it's God who saves, not we ourselves. And the Lord Jesus has spoken about this wonderful salvation. And he began by talking to Nicodemus about the Holy Spirit. And he spoke about the need for new birth and life from above. And then he goes on to speak about his own work as God the Son. And he says that he must be lifted up and that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And then after this very 
famously, he's going to speak about God the Father as he, as he says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the Lord Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, the work of saving a man, a woman, a young person, the work of salvation is a work of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Every person in the great Godhead is involved in, in the salvation of a man, a woman, a boy or a girl. Um, all three persons of the triune God are active and present whenever anyone is saved. Uh, everything comes from the Father. Everything comes through the Son. Everything comes by the Holy Spirit. The Father plans and determines everything. The Son executes the work of God and the Holy Spirit applies the work of God. That's true in everything that God does. We must always resist any efforts to divide our God and to say, well, this is, this is this work and this is that work. Well, God is always working together in everything. Think of creation, for instance. We begin the, the Bible uh, and we read of creation. And the Father determined to create a world. Let us make man in our image, says the Father. The Son is the one who executed that great work. He is the one who actually brought it about. He did it. Uh, all things were made by him and for him, says Paul in Colossians 1. And the Holy Spirit was the one who was active in actually bringing about the plans and the work of God because the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all involved in the work of creation and also involved in the work of new creation, in the work of our salvation, in other words, uh, which is just as powerful a work as the work of creation, is a work of saving a man, a woman, or a young person. Now, why did Jesus begin with the Holy Spirit? Normally, when we speak about God, we speak about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that is the order in which we generally speak of, of God, and there's reasons for that. But Jesus begins, when he's speaking to Nicodemus, he begins with the Holy Spirit. Why would he, why would he start there? Why not start with God the Father? After all, our salvation begins in the loving heart of God the Father, doesn't it? Well, I think Jesus begins with the Holy Spirit for a very good reason. He begins where Nicodemus is. He begins with something that Nicodemus should be able to understand. He begins with something that Jesus calls earthly things. When Jesus talks about the new birth, he's talking about, in one sense, earthly things, things that happen here on earth, things that we experience, uh, the work of God in our lives, this new change, this complete change, this new birth. It's something mysterious, it's something of, of the work of the Spirit himself, but we can see the effects of it. And Jesus has been dealing with that and saying to Nicodemus, well, these are, these are like the, the earthly things and I've spoken to you of earthly things when it comes to the Holy Spirit. But Jesus wants to move on from that. And now he wants to speak of heavenly things. 
He wants to speak of the, the heavenly things. You see, the problem is that the Jews have rejected even the earthly things. And so they're certainly going to reject the heavenly things. That's uh, what, what Jesus is, is saying here. In verse 11 of John 3, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. What did he mean by we and you people? Well, I think the you people is quite clear. Talk about Nicodemus and the Jewish rulers and the Jewish rabbis and the teachers of the day. They had largely rejected the Lord Jesus. They had rejected the work of the Holy Spirit in the salvation of men and women. They were holding on to the forms of religion, but they had completely jettisoned the heart of it and the work of God in the heart of men and women, young people. But what does Jesus mean by we? He says, we speak of what we know. Well, maybe he means himself and his disciples. Possibly he means himself and God the Father, or perhaps himself and John the Baptist. But he is saying that I can speak to you of heavenly things, things that I do know about. And what are these heavenly things? Look at that, verse 12. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? But what are these heavenly things? Well, these are things that no one could ever work out on earth. They're beyond the experience of human beings. They're things like God's great plan of salvation. They are the eternal decisions made by God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, before the world was ever created. Uh, the heavenly things refers to the spiritual battle that raged between God and the fallen angel Satan when he was cast out of heaven with his terrible host. These are heavenly things. These are things that we need revealed to us because we will never understand them unless they are revealed to us. And when they are revealed to us, as Jesus is revealing them here to Nicodemus and to us, we need to accept them. We need to embrace them. And we need to act on them. We need to know these things uh, because only through these heavenly things will we find eternal life. So the Lord Jesus then, he's uh, been talking about this new birth, the need for life from above, and now he goes on to speak about himself and his wonderful work. And the first thing that he tells us is that he came from heaven to reveal heavenly things. The Lord Jesus came from heaven in order to reveal heavenly things to us. You see it there in verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. No one has ever gone up into heaven and then come back into this world to tell us all about it. There have been many people who have said that they've done that but that's all been false. So many people have claimed, oh, I've been to heaven, I've seen this, I've had wonderful visions and so on. But, you know, the, the devil is deceitful, our hearts are deceitful. And the Lord Jesus says, no, nobody's ever gone to heaven 
come back to tell us these things. There's only one. And he's the one who's come from heaven. He was in heaven before the world began and now he's come into the world. Unless someone has been in God's throne room where the decisions were made to save sinful men and women, they would never know these things. And Jesus says, I'm the one. Nobody else. No one else at all. There is no one else in this world who can reveal to you heavenly things. Only, only me. I'm the one who came from heaven. I'm the son of man. Jesus claims to be the only one who was there. Not that he went into heaven and then came back again, but he originated there, in heaven, and he has now come to earth. Remember that John begins his whole book, his whole gospel, with declaring this in John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The Lord Jesus Christ came from heaven into earth. He was there. He was there in heaven. He was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was there in the beginning. And it's only through him that we can have this new life. So Jesus claims then that if we're going to know anything, anything about heavenly things, we need to find out from him and from no one else. Who are you going to listen to when you think about these heavenly things and when you want to discover them? Whose voice are you going to trust? There are many religions in the world. There are many people who claim to have all sorts of revelations and understandings of, of, of the things that are eternal and the things that are spiritual. There are but all these people are men and women like you and like me. They were born here. They originated here. All the other leaders of all the other religions of the world, they all have their origin in this world. And they are trying to tell us of things that happen in the other world, in the eternal courts of God. How can they? When, like us, they originate here. Why not listen to the only one who came from heaven? The only one who was there with God in the beginning. Why not listen to the Lord Jesus? And this is what he is saying to, to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a rabbi. That means he was a Jewish teacher. He had the Old Testament scriptures. And yet he couldn't reveal heavenly things. Those heavenly things are there in the Old Testament, but he had no real understanding of them. Only Jesus could come and make sense of them. Only Jesus could come and reveal them. You see, we have a, a revealed religion, a revealed faith. It has to be revealed from God to us. We don't work it out. We don't have a system where we have studied and thought and put everything together. We're in the dark completely until the light of God shines from heaven and that light has shone in Jesus Christ. I am the light of the world, he says. And uh, if you follow me, you will not any longer walk in the darkness, but you'll have the light of life. So what I want to encourage you is this, is to remember that the only person who can reveal heavenly things to us 
is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we are doing when we open up the word of God, what we're doing when we preach the word of God is that we are preaching the revelation that we have from Jesus Christ. In fact, you know that the last book in the Bible, we call it the Revelation. Sometimes it's called the Revelation of St. John. It's not actually the Revelation of St. John at all. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, listen to how John, it's the same John who wrote the Gospel. Listen to what he says as he begins this lovely book. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. The Lord Jesus has revealed these things. And so we have a revealed religion. And we need to have absolute confidence. You need to have confidence of the church that the message that you have does not originate with us. It doesn't really originate with any human being. It is not a human message. It is revealed from God. And we have a message with all the authority that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came from heaven to reveal heavenly things. No wonder on the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice of God the Father said, This is my son, whom I love, listen to him. Listen to him. You see, the problem was even there on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter and James and John were so filled with their own thoughts and what shall we do and what does it all mean that they weren't listening. And we need to listen to what God has told us in the Lord Jesus. So that's the first thing. The second thing that Jesus tells Nicodemus is this. He says that he will be lifted up like the snake in the desert in order to save us. Jesus would be lifted up like the snake in the desert to save us. We see it there in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted The Lord Jesus begins to unfold to Nicodemus and to us the heart of this wonderful plan that was decided in heaven before the world began and was executed by the Son of Man himself, Jesus, on earth. And staggeringly, Jesus tells Nicodemus that the way of salvation is not entirely new. It has already been partially revealed in the Old Testament. And Nicodemus was a teacher of the Old Testament. And so he should have known all of these things. Well, he certainly did know the historical scene that Jesus refers to here. He knew all about what had happened in Numbers chapter 21. But he had never made that connection between what was happening there and how... Men and women, young people are saved through Jesus, through the Messiah. So Jesus makes that connection for him. He says, go back to that scene, Nicodemus. Remember what it was all about. So let's do that. Numbers is a very sad book in the Old Testament. Very sad book. It's an account of wilderness wanderings. It's an account of failure. It's an account of grumbling. 
and of sin. People were so close to going into the promised land. They were so close. It's only a few days' journey to go from Egypt to Canaan, from Egypt to the promised land, Israel as we call it. Only a few days' journey. And they were on the borders and they sent the spies in. And the 12 spies went to spy out Canaan. Ten were bad, two were good. They all saw the grapes in clusters fall. And they all saw the giants tough and tall. But only two of them saw that God was in it all. And who did the people follow? They followed the ten spies, didn't they? And because of that, all the people of that generation were barred from entering into the promised land. And for 40 years, one year for every day that those 12 spies were in the land of Canaan, 40 years they wandered in the desert until everyone who was 20 years old and over, in, had, had been 20 years old and over in Egypt, every one of that generation died except for Joshua and Caleb, the two spies, the two spies who said, we can do it, God can do it. God is in this. They too survived, but everyone, including Moses and Aaron, even they died in the wilderness. It's a sad book, the book of Numbers. And it's a book of constant failure and yet God's great mercy. This is why we read from the beginning of Numbers 21. God has been so merciful, so kind to them. They'd been attacked by this enemy army. And some of the people had been captured. And so they cried out to God. And he heard them. And he delivered them. And they completely destroyed the towns of their enemies. What a wonderful mercy that was. And so how do they repay the Lord for all of his goodness and mercy to them? Well, they grumbled, didn't they? Oh, we're impatient. We don't like this food. We, we have no bread here. Why did we come out of Egypt in the first place? There's no water here. We hate this miserable food. They were referring to the manna that God had, 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 um, had given them. They were grumbling against God. Their hearts were rebellious. They were turning against him. There was sin in their hearts. And yet God was so patient. So they grumbled and grumbled and God judged them for their sin. He sent these snakes among them and the snakes bit the people. And many of the Israelites died because of the poisonous snakes that were amongst them. And then they came to Moses and they said, well, we sinned. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. Now, they were sorry for their sins, weren't they? They were saddened by the consequences of their sins. And they admitted that they were sad. They admitted that they had sinned. They were repenting of their sins. And they wanted God to take away the judgment. Moses prayed. But you see, just being sorry for sin doesn't deal with sin. And that's an important lesson. You know, we, we tend to sometimes misunderstand salvation. We say, well, God is a loving God. God is a patient God. God is a kind God. If I say that I'm sorry for my sins, God will forgive me. Well, that's not entirely true. It misses out something, doesn't it? It misses out something very, very important. And that is that there is a price 
to be paid for sin. When my brother and I were very young, we used to play football in the front garden. And one day, one of us, I say it was him, he says it was me. But one of us kicked the football. And it went flying across the road and it smashed into the front of one of our neighbour's cars. And he was scary, this neighbour. He was a big man. He was scary. He didn't smash the windscreen. What a relief. Well, we went over to have a look, like you do, and get our ball back. And we discovered that it had broken his windscreen wipers. Well, we didn't think that was too much of a problem. So he took our ball, went indoors, forgot all about it. Till Dad came home. And then we had to admit what we'd done. And he said, that's fine. Go across the road, knock on the door, and tell Mr. Halls that you have broken his windscreen wipers. You come with us, Dad. No, no, you've got to go. So off we went, knocked on the door, shaking. And he came to the door, and we said, we're really, really sorry. And we were genuinely sorry that we'd done it. By then, we knew that this was bad. We're really sorry, but we've broken your windscreen wipers on your car. Oh, that's okay, boys. No problem. Who's going to pay for it? Now, see, we hadn't thought about that. Someone's still got to pay for it. It's okay, he forgave us, but someone's still got to pay for it. Damage has been done. Wrong has been done. And someone's got to pay for it. So we went back home. And Dad said, that's okay. I'll pay for it. And, and that's the bit that we miss. You see, sin means punishment. And we might be very sorry for our sins, but someone has to pay. And so when these people in the desert, when they came to Moses and said, uh, we're sorry, we've, we've sinned against God, please, please go and pray for us, what God did is he said, there is a way that this is going to be dealt with. And the way it will be dealt with is for you, Moses, to make a snake and put it on a pole and lift it up. And then people have got to look at that snake and then they will live. And that was how God was going to deal with this. But any real wise and understanding Israelite would be saying to himself, how can that snake on a pole save me? How can just looking at that snake save me? In the same way that he might say, how can the death of a lamb or a ram or a bull on the altar, how can that bring me forgiveness? And yet God says that it will. But what Jesus was explaining is that all of this, were, all of these really were pictures pointing forward to him. That one day, there wouldn't be a snake on a pole, there would be a saviour on a cross. And he would be lifted up. And it is through him that we would be saved. The price had to be paid. And it was going to be paid by the Lord Jesus. There's many similarities between Jesus being lifted up and the snake being lifted up. In both cases, death is the punishment for sin. 
In both cases, God provides the deliverance. In both cases, something or someone has to be lifted up in public. And in both cases, life comes through looking in faith to what was lifted up. You see, there is something deeper still here, isn't there? Why a snake? Why not put a lamb up there? Why does it have to be a snake that was put on the pole? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? It's because it was snakes that were causing the death. And so why does Jesus have to be lifted up? It is because it's sin that causes our death. It's sin that causes our spiritual death. And so someone has to be hanging on the cross who becomes sin for us. Now we have to be careful there, don't we? It is not that Jesus ever committed any sins. And yet when he was on the cross, as the Bible clearly says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Maybe to be a sin offering for us. But actually, we can understand it in the sense that God was treating Jesus on the cross as if he were the greatest sinner. He was bearing our sins as he was lifted up there on that cross. And, and all of this was there in that Old Testament lifting up of the serpent. And I'm sure there would have been Israelites who would have, at least in some shadowy way, would have understood that. And they would have looked at that snake and said, a snake has bitten me, but this snake will save me. In the same way that we can say, I'm a sinner, but this saviour can save me and forgive me. He was lifted up. Where was Jesus lifted up? Well, he was lifted up on the cross, wasn't he? And so that everyone could see him. And he is the one who alone can save. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, coming back to John chapter 3, that he will be lifted up like the snake in the desert to save us. And then finally, Jesus says that everyone, everyone, who believes in him may have eternal life. Everyone who believes in him is given eternal life. Verse 15. Jesus is going to be lifted up publicly. Many are going to look at him, but not everyone will be saved. There are lots of people who came by that day when Jesus was hanging on the cross, and lots of them saw him there, but not all of them were saved. And even now, Jesus is lifted up and preached uh, and not everybody who hears the message of the cross is saved. Why not? Because you have to look in faith. You have to believe. That is what Jesus is saying. You have to be those who have faith in him. Jesus says everyone. So the invitation is wide, isn't it? Everyone. That's something that we need to remember. <clears throat> we can hold out this gospel message to everyone. There's not a single person here in this room tonight that this does not apply to. When Jesus says everyone, it includes you. Whoever you are, 
whatever your background is, whatever your age is, however far you have been from salvation, whatever you've done in your life, whatever you've done in your life, however bad you have been, however good you think you've been, whatever you are like, wherever you're from, whether you've heard this many, many times before or whether this is the first time that you're hearing it, you are included in the everyone. Everyone. We can hold out this wonderful message to every single person that we meet. Everyone. But not everyone will be saved because it means they must believe. Everyone who believes in him. We have to have faith. We have to trust in the Lord Jesus. You think of those who are there in the desert and they've been bitten by the, the snake and they see Moses putting this pole up with this, this snake and they see the pole but they don't believe that it's really going to do anything for them. So they see it all right but they don't believe. They don't look in faith. They might look, but they don't look in faith to the Lord Jesus. And that's what we have to do. We need to look to him and believe in him and trust in him that what he has done on the cross is for us, that he died for my sins. He took my sins in his body on that cross. And we need to believe and trust in him and keep on believing Everyone who believes in him, Jesus says. Not believed once, but believes. Keeps on believing. Trusting in the Lord Jesus for all of our lives. And never saying, well, Jesus has got me so far and I'm going to get myself the rest of the way. No, it's only Jesus who will save you. And you've got to believe in him. And you've got to believe in him, in Jesus specifically. You must believe in him and in his death on the cross for you. And what does Jesus say will happen? Well, we may have eternal life. Again, that's, a, that's different from the desert, isn't it? In the desert, they got physical life. They were healed of the poison. It didn't affect them. It didn't kill them. But later on, they had to die. But Jesus says, no, I am lifted up so that you can have eternal life. You can have a life that begins right now the life of God in your soul that begins right now, but it's a life that will never, ever end. Your body will die, but your life with God will continue forever. Your soul will live forever. And one day you will have a new body because even your body, when it rests in the earth, will still be united with Christ. And one day it will be raised again to a new body, reunited with your soul, and you will live forever and ever in God's new heaven and new earth. That is what the Lord Jesus is offering. He says, I'll be lifted up and everyone, whoever believes in me, may have eternal life. Because there is life for a look at the crucified one. So my first appeal to you tonight is to say, do that. If you have never done that before, do that. You say, well, Jesus is not here. He died 2,000 years ago. There is no cross any longer. There is no Jesus hanging on a cross. There is no one lifted up on a cross. So how can I believe when it's all happened and, and, and done and finished? Well, 
Jesus being lifted up on the cross was an event once, but it has eternal significance. And we can still do that. By faith, we can still look to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can think of the cross there and understand what it means for Jesus to be lifted up on the cross and dying for our sins. We can put our faith in the one who died on the cross of Calvary. And we can have such confidence because we know that he was taken down, dead, he was buried in the tomb, and three days later he rose again. So he is alive today. And though he is in heaven, yet his Holy Spirit is here. And we are able to have faith in him by the help and strength of the Holy Spirit. So look, don't be worried about all of the mechanics of it in that sense. How does this happen? Why? Just look to the Lord Jesus Christ and just believe and trust in him. If you've never done that before, look to him tonight and seek that salvation that comes from him. Believe that what he says is true, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So that's my first appeal. If there's anyone here who's not yet done that, there is life for a look at the crucified one. And my second appeal to you is, as a church, to keep on lifting Jesus up. That's what we must do, isn't it? He was lifted up on the cross, but it's our job to keep on lifting him up in the sense of keeping him before people's eyes in our preaching and in our personal witness and in our lives to glorify the one who was lifted up to die because salvation is found in no one else. So have confidence in the gospel of Christ and keep on holding out this word of life to all, regardless of who they are, regardless of their ethnic background, regardless of their history, regardless of their age, regardless of their past or present sins, whoever, hold out the word of life to them. Because just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. What a wonderful gospel we have. This is what we believe. Let's never move from it because it is only through Jesus that we and anyone else may be saved and have eternal life.